dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in an age of almost instant news. We can scroll through an ever-changing list of headlines on our phones, and we've got live images and intimate footage via television and internet. Journalists are assigned to war fronts, and they broadcast regular updates right into our homes. How did that work in Bible times? Well, there was no instant messaging. The messenger had to come in person. There was no live footage. The messenger had to come on foot. And our scripture passage this afternoon tells us of such a messenger who came from the battlefront. He comes to the town of Shiloh. Shiloh was the tabernacle town, the place where the tent where God dwelt with his people was located. And that whole town was on tenterhooks. The town's people were waiting on the edges of their seats to hear the outcome of the battle. There was a lot at stake. Either the Philistines would be held back or the Philistines would come pouring into the land and overrun them. Not only that, but the ark of the Lord had gone to the battlefront. And so especially Eli was nervous. His heart trembled for the ark. The townspeople could see the messenger coming with his robes torn. They could see the dirt on his head. And they knew at once that the news was not good. There were no live images, and there were only a few spoken words, but that was enough. The news report produced shock and horror. The people heard the news, and they cried out. And Eli heard the news, and he fell backwards off his chair and broke his neck. Phinehas' wife heard the news, and she went into intense labor and died in childbirth. And this afternoon, we're going to focus on the dying words of that widow in Shiloh. She said, the glory has departed from Israel. And so I summarize our text this afternoon as follows. The widow of Shiloh confesses our need for God. We'll see our need for God's glory and our need for God's grace. Just before she dies... Phinehas's widow names her son Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. You know, of course, that the ark in the tabernacle represented the presence of God with his people. At the end of the book of Exodus, after the tabernacle was built and the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, then the glory of the Lord entered the tabernacle. And notice that in our chapter, 1 Samuel 4, verse 4, the Ark is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. But now the tabernacle stands empty, the ark has been captured, and the glory of the Lord is gone. 
Now, I'd like you to notice that it does not say that the glory of the Lord has been captured, but it says that the glory has departed. God is not passive in our passage. It's not as though he had no choice in the matter. Rather, God is active. We sang of Psalm 78, which puts it this way, God forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. He delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hands. God willingly gave his glory up. That's quite something. It's shocking. Why would God do that? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand the context. At the beginning of the chapter, we read that Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. The Philistines lived on the west side of the land along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And a large army of Philistines had gone up to the town of Aphek. Now, if you've got a good Bible map, you'll see that Aphek was located along one of the main trade routes that ran north-south along the Mediterranean Sea coast. Why would the Philistines gather there? Well, it's because at Aphek, that north-south trade route intersected with another road that ran east-west right into the heart of the land of Israel. What that means is simply this. Whoever controlled Aphek controlled the economy. From a military perspective, Aphek was the gateway into the territory of Israel. It was the perfect launch pad for a full-scale invasion. And that's why the Israelites went to fight against them there to hold them back. Because if they couldn't hold them back there, they wouldn't be able to hold them back at all. The first battle did not go very well for Israel. 4,000 casualties. And when the rest returned to the army camp, then the elders asked, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Was a very good question to ask. Why did the Lord bring defeat? What's wrong? They acknowledge that God is the one who brings victory or defeat. He's the one that's in charge of the outcome of the battle. The question is good. But then notice that they don't look for an answer to the question. There's no soul searching. There's no self-examination. At the beginning of the service, we sang hymn 12, which is based on the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. The song told the people what would happen to them if they forsook the Lord. He would abandon them. He would give them into the hands of their enemies. And as I mentioned earlier, Moses had made the Israelites memorize this song as a witness against them. And he told them to teach this song to their children. So the elders of the land should have been able to figure out what was wrong. Think back to another time when Israel was defeated. When Israel first entered the promised land, after the walls of Jericho fell down, then they fought against the next town, Ai. But they were defeated there. 
And we read that Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the ground before the ark until evening. He and all the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua asked, why have you done this, Lord? Same question. But here there's no humility. The elders ask the question, but they don't look for the answer. And they could have. If you look at how chapter 3 ends, it says there that the Lord appeared to Samuel at Shiloh, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. All Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. So Samuel could have told them why the Lord had given them defeat. But instead of sending for Samuel, they sent for Hophni and Phinehas. Let's bring the ark, they say. Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant up from Shiloh that it may go with us. It'll save us from the hand of our enemies. What exactly are they proposing here? Well, essentially, the elders were proposing to use the ark as security. If we've got the ark in our midst, it'll keep us safe because the Lord will never let anything happen to the ark. The ark is so precious to the Lord, so precious to God's people, that he'll have to give us the victory. It was a gamble. They were calling God's bluff, and the stakes were high, because if they lost, the ark would be captured, and the tabernacle would cease to function. But it never occurred to the elders that they could lose. The elders thought that they could manipulate God and kind of compel God to defend them. That's a pagan thought, isn't it? That you can get your God to do what you want him to do. However, the Bible tells us that God has a mighty arm, which means that the arm of the Lord cannot be twisted behind his back. The very thought shows how ungodly Israel's leaders had become. And when the elders are unfaithful, then the entire nation, the entire people of the Lord, suffers the consequences. Now, the distance between Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the ark was, and the town of Aphek, where the battle was happening, is about 50 kilometers. That's quite a hike for Hophni and Phinehas. Now, chapter 2 tells us that they were becoming fat, so the hike itself maybe was not such a bad thing. But again, we read of no self-reflection, no hesitation, no humility. Hophni and Phinehas were willing enough. Why not? It was an exciting opportunity for them to carry the ark into battle and be at the forefront of a glorious victory. In fact, when the ark arrived, the people cheered so loudly that the ground shook. And notice the reaction of the Philistines. They were afraid. Because in their own superstitious way, they had heard what the Lord had done for Israel in the past. Now you might wonder then, if they were afraid, why didn't they run away? Well, you see, it's like this. If Aphek was a gateway for the Philistines to invade Israel, 
then that means that it's also a gateway for the Israelites to invade Philistia. So they said to themselves, be strong, be men. Be men, you Philistines, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. The Philistines fought, and the great shock of the outcome was that Israel was defeated again. The ark did not help them. In fact, the second defeat was a lot worse than the first. First time, 4,000 were killed. The second time, 30,000 foot soldiers died. The Israelite army was crushed. And the gateway to the promised land was wide open with no one to keep the Philistines out. Hophni and Phinehas also died. Psalm 78 says that they were killed by the sword. And so the prophecy of the man of God who had come to Eli back in chapter 2 came true. Both of his sons died on the same day. And the ark was carried off as a prize of war. The survivors scattered to their homes, and one of them, a man from Benjamin, passed through the town of Shiloh as he was fleeing, and he told the news. It must have been a tremendous shock for the townsfolk. God did not save them from their enemies. In fact, God allowed the ark to be captured. The ark where God sits enthroned between the cherubim, so holy that if anyone except for a priest would touch it, he would die. But it's carried off as spoil. It's manhandled by pagans who put their unclean fingers on it and nothing happens. God does nothing about it. God does not defend his glory. God would rather let the ark be captured than help his own people in war. The glory is gone. Ichabod. Yes, the widow of Shiloh says it well. Ichabod, no glory. Who was this woman? We don't even know her name. All we know is that she was Phinehas's wife. When you think about it, she probably had a hard life. The earlier chapters tell us that Hophni and Phinehas slept with the women who served at the tent of meeting. So she had an unfaithful husband. But we don't read about her marriage. That's not the point of our text. So what is the point? Why is this little story in the Bible? Well, it's because of her reaction to the capture of the ark. It was a devastating shock for her. The news induced labor so intense that she could not survive. The birth attendants tried to encourage her with the news that her child had arrived safe and sound. Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But notice her reaction. She did not answer, nor did she pay any attention. Now, does that mean that she ignored her own newborn child? No, it doesn't mean that, because with her last breaths, she still gave him a name. But she ignored the words of the birth attendants. They wanted to encourage her with a bit of good news, to put a silver lining on the cloud. Here is life in the midst of death, a new start. Cheer up. 
It'll be okay. But the widow of Shiloh will not allow this day to become a happy birthday. The ark is captured, and the birth of her child can never undo that. His birthday must always be remembered as the day when the glory departed from Israel, Ichabod. Her child cannot bring the glory back. His birth makes no difference to Israel's well-being. There is no gospel here. Neither she nor anyone else can find comfort in this baby. Israel's comfort comes from the presence of the Lord. And now that presence is gone. And there, brothers and sisters, you have a true confession from a woman who realizes her need for God, our need for God. When the glory is gone, then only misery is left. And the birth of new children does not by itself lift us out of our misery, for our children share in that misery. They don't have the power to bring God's glory back. And only when we've realized that are we ready to look for our only comfort from the one child who can bring God's glory back, the Christ child. As we read in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that brings us to our second point, our need for God's grace. The widow of Shiloh confesses our need for God's grace. I've been calling her the widow of Shiloh. And that's because we have to see this woman in the context of the town where she was living, the tabernacle town. She speaks for a town which had received a sacred trust. Of all the towns in the promised land, Shiloh was entrusted with the Ark of the Covenant. Shiloh became the center of Israel's worship. Until Hophni and Phinehas began to abuse that trust. And their father Eli rebuked them, but they paid no attention to him. He rebuked them, but he did not restrain them. Yes, their father, old Eli, still cared for the safety of the ark. His heart trembled for it. But Hophni and Phinehas were quite willing to put the ark up as security for the people. They were presumptuous. God would never let anything happen to the ark. But they did not know the Lord. And now it was too late. The glory was gone. Shiloh had forfeited its sacred trust. And you know, brothers and sisters, the ark never came back to Shiloh ever again. You remember how the Philistines took it to their cities? But wherever the ark settled, the Lord struck that Philistine town with a plague until they moved it on to the next town, and eventually they sent it back to Israel. But it didn't go to Shiloh. It was stored in a variety of places in people's homes until the day when David, the king, finally moved it to Jerusalem. 
and he put it in a new tent that he had erected for it, but never back to Shiloh. Why did the people never bring it back to Shiloh? Well, it's because Shiloh was destroyed. When exactly, we don't know, but probably shortly after our text. There are several passages in the Bible that speak about the destruction of Shiloh. Psalm 78 mentions it. Jeremiah 7, which we read together. Also, Jeremiah 26, all mention that Shiloh was destroyed. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have dug around in that area, in the town of Shiloh, where it used to be, and they found evidence of heavy destruction there. Now, apparently, the tabernacle itself did survive. Later on, when David fled from Saul, remember how he went to the high priest to ask for some of the holy showbread, and he received it. That was in a different town, the town of Nob. And still later on, after David became king, we read that David appointed Zadok to be the high priest over the tabernacle, now in Gibeon. So the, 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 the tabernacle moved around a few times, but it did not go back to Shiloh either. There, the glory was gone for good. Now, what do we learn from this? We learn that the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people is never a matter of presumption, but of grace. When God chooses a place for his glory to dwell, the people of that place should not say, God could never leave us. And that's what Jeremiah tried to explain in the passage that we read from Jeremiah 7. Ever since the time of David, the ark had been in Jerusalem, in the temple. And that was the place where God had chosen to put his name. But Jerusalem, too, became an ungodly place. The people were corrupt and idolatrous. It was just as it had been in the days of Hophni and Phinehas. But the people thought they were okay. God would never let anything happen to Jerusalem. That's his city. And we're God's chosen people. Jeremiah said, change your ways. Don't assume that the temple of the Lord will always be here. Are you going to just go on stealing and murdering and burning incense to Baal and then assume that you can just stand in the temple while you're treating it like a den of robbers? Jeremiah says, why don't you go to Shiloh, the place where my name used to be, and see what I did to it. And if the people had listened and they had traveled to Shiloh, they would have seen the ruins there, and they would have learned that the widow's words still rang true. The glory is gone. It's still gone. It's never come back. Through Jeremiah, the Lord warned that he would do the same thing to Jerusalem. But the people refused again to believe God would not do such a thing. He'd never let his beautiful temple be destroyed. He'd never let the ark be captured. But God did through Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah lived to see the temple burned to the ground. The ark disappeared. It was never seen again. 
Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. The glory was gone again. And yes, after the exile, the temple was built again, but the, the ark was lost forever. There was no ark in the temple in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus was there. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ spent much of his time in the temple in Jerusalem. Already as a boy, he wanted to be busy in his father's house. It was there that he taught the crowds about his father in heaven. And on two occasions, remember how he cleansed the temple. He drove out the merchants and the money changers. And then he quoted the words of Jeremiah 7. You have made my temple into a den of robbers. The disciples once pointed to the temple how beautiful it was. But the Lord Jesus responded to them that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. And again, the disciples were shocked. The very idea that the temple could be destroyed, that was unthinkable for them. In fact, the chief priests held those words against Jesus when they put him on trial. Remember the testimony of the false witnesses. This man said that he could destroy the temple of God and build it up again in three days. Not quite what Jesus said. He had, in fact, once said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, which would rise from the dead. The great sin of the Jews in Jesus' day was that they did not recognize Jesus to be the temple of God in whom the fullness of God's glory dwelled. His disciples saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord Jesus shone with the glory of God. But the Jewish leaders did their best to shame and humiliate him. They stripped him of his dignity. They spat on him and they crucified him. And Christ allowed it. Just as the Lord had allowed the Ark of His Covenant to be captured by the Philistines, so Christ allowed Himself to be captured and misused. He did not stand up for His glory, but He laid it aside. The temple of His body was broken and the glory was gone. And just like the widow of Shiloh, so too Jesus' disciples were shocked and grieved. How could this happen? But Christ could do what Ichabod could never do. He could bring the glory back. He built the temple up again by rising from the dead, filled with the glory of God. And there's the miracle of grace. No man can bring God's glory back, but Jesus can. And that miracle gives us great hope. Christ promises to give his Holy Spirit to everyone who believes in him. And then we read in the New Testament that believers become temples of the Holy Spirit. That's a sacred trust. 
as temples of the Holy Spirit, we must live holy lives. Let's never become presumptuous. Let's never lull ourselves into thinking that the Spirit would never leave us. God would not do a thing like that. Think of what the exalted Christ says in the letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. He said, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Repent, or I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The message here is a very serious one. If we do what Hophni and Phinehas did, what Israel did, what the Jews of Jesus' day did, living in sin and acting as though life will go on as it always has, thinking that God couldn't possibly leave us, that we can count on him to help us in times of difficulty, that God would never condemn us. We fool ourselves, brothers and sisters. We do not know the Lord any better than Hophni and Phinehas did. He can leave his temple behind. Go back to Shiloh. Listen to that widow's confession. The glory is gone, she said. It's never come back. She said it on her deathbed. Thank God that she said it. But may it not take us that long. Live humbly, brothers and sisters. Let's repent of our sins and live humbly before our God and examine ourselves and recognize our deep need for God's grace. And then we may also learn to live out of God's grace and see how the Spirit of the Lord will transform us from glory to glory. We may trust that the one who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise you up with him in glory. And you may look forward to the new Jerusalem, which is to come. An amazing thing that the book of Revelation says about the new Jerusalem is that it's a city with no temple because it says the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It will not need the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminates it, and the Lamb gives it light. Brothers and sisters, we see far better than the widow of Shiloh could see, because we've got the rest of the history of salvation of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. That widow saw her baby Ichabod, and she confessed that the glory is gone. But we see Christ greater than Ichabod, and we confess that the glory has come back to stay. Amen.